Hey, gang, the Max Fun Drive is happening right now. We'll talk more about all the awesome stuff you can get in on later. But for now, while you listen, make sure to go to MaximumFun.org slash donate. That's MaximumFun.org slash donate and find out how to participate. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. There's no mistaking Lily Tomlin. She's been acting and doing comedy since the 60s. And even when the part is on the smaller side, she is never lost in the background. In fact, she almost steals the show in the new Tina Fey movie. It's called Admission. Tomlin plays Faye's mom, a first-wave feminist who chops her own wood, fixes her own bike, and has a big tattoo of Bella Abzug on her arm. But if you can believe it, Tomlin wanted to go even bigger. Well, initially I had, uh, because my character has had a double mastectomy, I originally wanted to make a breastplate and tattoo that, huge elaborate tattoo, and then I was going to try to persuade the director to let me be chopping wood shirtless (laughs) in the yard. Well, I couldn't, getting a breastplate done and everything was, I was short on time, so I settled in my mind for a Bella (laughs) tattoo. (laughs) God, Lily Tomlin's cool. It's Bullseye. This week, I talk with Lily Tomlin about her storied career. Before she was one of America's comedy greats, she was, yes, really, a cheerleader. Well, because, you know, well, ladies and gentlemen and students, too, well, here's a little cheer we're going to give to you. Hands up, touch to touch, a touch to touch. And that's not the only secret we get out of her. God knows what I've said. Then astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson chases the unexplored secrets of the universe. I'd like to rename NASA the Department of Ambition. How about that? Because I don't know any other agency that can trigger a, a dream state the way NASA can. And I explained to him why I am really, really scared of space. That's all this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on the show, we get culture recommendations from our favorite critics. This week, we're joined by Eric Adams, the assistant TV editor, and Claire Zolke, a contributor to the AV Club. Hey, Claire and Eric, how are you guys doing? Great, Jesse. Hey, Jesse. Thanks for having us. Eric, I want to start with you and your recommendation, Happy Endings. This is uh, sort of... Well, the setup's a lot like Friends. It airs on Fridays on ABC, just got moved to Fridays. Fridays are usually television show death. Um, Is that why you've chosen this opportunity to uh, get people to try and watch it? Yeah, it's kind of a last-ditch effort here to get people interested and watching Happy Endings. Well, why do you think the show's worth watching? Uh, It is... Pure and simply the funniest sitcom of its kind on TV right now. I have a brain idea. El Agave. Yes, Yes, El Agave. It's so much fun and they'll fry anything. Oh, I don't know. That might be a little weird for Brad. It used to be kind of a breakup spot for him. You had a restaurant specifically to break up with people? Ah, yes. El Agave. It was perfect. There was a mariachi band. The silverware was plastic and the tables were bolted to the ground. You mentioned Friends. You know, it, it, it is of a kind of show that we've seen again and again and again. The, uh, the six attractive friends on a couch show. But it's so snappy and so funny. And the, uh, the characters are a, a little meaner than what you might see on Friends or How I Met Your Mother. 
when the actors are on, it's it's funnier than anything else on TV. Claire, let's talk about your recommendation, Suburgatory. Um, this is another sitcom. It's got a couple favorites of ours in there, including past guest Chris Parnell. Uh, tell me what you like about it. To me, it's sort of like a mix of uh, Mean Girls plus 30 Rock, but it sets it in this really uh, bizarre uh, parody of, uh, of the suburbs. It took me a couple of weeks, but I finally found my favorite thing to do in the suburbs. Sleep. Tessa, what are you doing? Let's go before she gets here. Why didn't you set an alarm? I'm getting snooze. I was having the most amazing dream about Manhattan. That one was so amazing. We were still living there. Uh Uh-huh. There's a lot of great side jokes and uh, kind of uh, subplots to it, and it's just really fun to watch. Claire Zolke recommends Suburgatory, which airs Wednesdays on ABC. She's a contributor to the AV Club and the proprietor of Zolke.com. Eric Adams is the AV Club's assistant TV editor. He recommends Happy Endings, which is Friday nights on ABC. Thanks, guys. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Lily Tomlin is one of the greats of American comedy. She's won two Tonys, four Emmys, two Peabody's, a Grammy, and been nominated for an Academy Award. In 2003, she won the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. It's a pretty good list. She's worked in TV on shows like Laughing and The West Wing, in films like Nashville and Flirting with Disaster, and on stage in acclaimed works like The Search for Science of Intelligent Life in the Universe, which was written by her life and creative partner of 40 years, Jane Wagner. These days, she's a regular on the Reba McIntyre sitcom Malibu Country, and in the new film Admission, she plays Tina Fey's free-spirited first-wave feminist mother, a woman who chops her own wood, fixes her own bike, and has a big tattoo of Bella Abzug on her bicep. In this scene from the movie, (laughs) Tina Fey's character Portia has just let herself into her mom's house, somewhat unexpectedly. Mom? It's me. Who? How many people call you mom? Why didn't you tell me you were coming? I left a message. I was visiting a school nearby. I never check my messages. That's a good policy. Thought I'd spend the night if it's all right with you. I've got to get up very early and then hit a few schools and race back for Mark's department lunch. How can you stand those English department gatherings? What could be more dull? Sometimes you make sacrifices for the person you've been living with for 10 years. That's what a healthy relationship is, Mom. (laughs) Thank God I'm not in one of those. Yes, thank God. If I had to do what I'm supposed to be doing every minute of my life like you do, I'd kill myself. Did you just say if you were me, you would kill yourself? Portia, don't exaggerate. (laughs) <laughs> Lily Tomlin, welcome to Bullseye. It's really great to have you on the show. Thanks, Jesse. Nice to be here. Um, so I want to I start by asking you about the Bella Abzug tattoo. Was that in the script? Where, where did that come into this uh, process? Well, in, initially I had, uh, because my character has had a double mastectomy, I, um, I originally w- wanted to make a breastplate, you know, as if I had a mastectomy and and tattoo that. Huge, elaborate tattoo. And then I was going to try to persuade the director to let me be chopping wood shirtless in the yard. <laughs> well, I couldn't – getting a breastplate done and everything was – I was short on time. So I settled in my mind for a Bella tattoo. 
I read somewhere, and this this uh, was stunning to me, left me gobsmacked, that you were a cheerleader. Mm-hmm. When were you a cheerleader? High school. Um, that would be in the 50s, in the mid-late 50s, like 55, 56, 57. <laughs> and I was a captain. I was a co-captain, really. Really? Oh, yeah. But I went to a very soulful high school, a high school that, you know, we if we – I mean, it would be embarrassing if a, like an all-white school cheered against us because they would be so so square and so rah-rah. And, of course, we were way down. We really got down and rocked the – for example. Basketball court. For example? Well, just, you know, well, it, we just did soulful cheers. Like, you know, we, you know, let's go, cast tech, let's go, bump, bump. Let's go, cast tech, let's go, bump, bump. Off the floor and out the door. Let's go, cast tech, let's go. You know, like that. <laughs> that's the best thing that's happened to me since I got Jim Lair to uh, call out bus stations. <laughs> Okay. Like he used to do in his old job as a bus station announcer. What was your What was your family like when you were a kid? Um, well, my mother and dad are both Southern. They're from Kentucky, and my dad was a factory worker. And my mom didn't work till I was about twelve, and she got a job as a nurse's aide. So they were blue collar. Um, I went to the, I went to Kentucky every summer, and the rest of the year I was lived in inner city Detroit, in a predominantly black neighborhood. And then I'd go to Kentucky, and it would be like, you know, a real culture clash, culture change, culture shock is the word, isn't it? Um, what, was, what about it? What, what was different? Well, er, I mean, everything from the way, the racially, how people behaved. Uh, it, it was diametrically opposite, you know, going to rural Kentucky in the 40s and 50s and going and living in inner city Detroit. And also on a farm, you get to see animals copulating and things like that. You didn't <laughs> see a lot of that in the, in Detroit. <laughs> I mean, on the street. When did you decide that you that you actually could pursue a life as an artist, and that could be your life life? Um, I think uh, I think when I probably realized that I I tried to be I I. I at one point in college, I I enrolled in pre-med, but I could not. I could never have been a doctor, and I would not have had the brain for it at all. I think that was one awakening point where I thought, oh, God, I can't do this. These, all the stuff that's demanded, you know, mathematically and computing all these things, and it just wasn't up my alley. So I, um, and I got into a college show. I mean, I'd always put on shows all my life as a kid, but didn't think that's what people did to make a living. You know, I was a blue-collar kid. You you it just doesn't dawn on you that that's something that people actually do and get away with you know as and earn a living so i um but when i got in this college show i was such a hit people just were carrying on so much i i said i'm going to when midterms were over i said i'm going to go to new york and try to get be an actor and, i mean that is a grand vision based on a successful college review sketch well, you know, I hate to say it, Jesse, but I just felt like I was born to it. <laughs> As I was sitting up there on stage, I thought, well, this is just so much fun. I just, I don't know why I didn't do this before. I, let's talk a little bit about the very start of your acting career in the um, in the mid-60s in New York. And I actually have a clip of uh, a commercial 
Um, and I, I, this commercial doesn't need that much setting up other than to say that uh, it's just you on screen. You look spectacular, by the way. And uh, the screen is filling with water and agitating, <laughs> not yeah. unlike a washing machine. On how to get rid of dirty stains and put dazzle where the stain was. I use New All now with bleach, borax, and brighteners. Watch. The bleach and borax lift out the stains. Brighteners splash on dazzle. That was quite a hard commercial because they... Uh, like 300 gallons of water would rush in in like a second, uh, like a one second or two seconds. You were you were really underwater. I wasn't under. I was up to my neck. Well, yeah, no, I, I saw the commercial. You're, I assumed that it was some sort of visual effect. No, well, the taking the stains was a visual effect, and that they they had to take it off the air eventually because it was considered untruthful. <laughs> <laughs> because I, you know, I I agitated my upper body in this big tank of water. You didn't know I was in the tank at was first. Was the water cold? Yeah, it was cold, and it was, and it would. It took days to shoot because they tried everything: cement booties, because I it would knock <laughs> Could me you over. Kept floating? No, it would just oh no! Knock, it would not. The water was so rushed and so big, it would knock you over. So like the first day, it just kept knocking me, and then it'd have to dry me off and redo my hair, and. uh all that stuff. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor and comedian Lily Tomlin. She jumped into the spotlight on Laugh-In in the 60s, schemed alongside Dolly Parton in the classic movie 9 to 5, and played a tough mother on HBO's Eastbound and Down. She stars alongside Tina Fey in the new movie Admission, which is in theaters now. Was that one of the first uh, big professional gigs that you booked? Oh yeah, I think I the first the actual first one was a Vicks Vapo Rub. That commercial changed my life because I had uh that was 66 and I had uh been hired onto the a uh, uh, a return of the Gary Moore show. Gary Moore uh was making a comeback on CBS. And I only did 3 episodes and they fired me. And then um so I went back to uh typing Why, why did you get fired? Oh, probably because I was sort of um, combative about material. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I wasn't combative in a, you know, hateful way. I just, I'd say, no, no, we can't do this. This is too old-fashioned or this is, I just didn't think it was funny or hip or anything. You actually got offered a part on Laugh-In, which was, by by the time you were offered the part, was already a big, huge national hit. Right. And turned it down because you wanted to take a hipper job, right? Yeah, I wanted a music scene. I took music scene on ABC, which was like a contemporary hit parade, uh, whereby um, there was a band of kids, five or six kids. David Steinberg was the leader, and he was already sort of known. And we were supposed to do comedy and introduce the songs, but we had we had concerts with Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin. And I, I just watched them with Sly and the Family Stone. It was absolutely amazing. Yeah. It was a, and it was a real concert. It wasn't a lip sync either. No, no, it was great. We were we thought we were just really hot stuff, and uh, and the show was. But parents, they didn't. This was nineteen. What did I say? Now that well, that wait a minute. It's like nineteen sixty nine. I think. Yeah, that's sixty nine. Because then I went to laugh, and I, the offer was still there. So I went to laugh in mid season because. Music scene got taken off the air. I want to play a clip from Music Scene, and this is a character that I, I if I'm not mistaken, you did uh, in your audition for Laugh In. 
Um, it's called Lucille the Rubber Freak. Yeah, but I'm not doing it in character. The sh- music scene want, didn't <laughs> want me to do character because they said people won't know who you are. In those days, they if people did multiple characters, they said the audience gets confused. So I had to kind of do it as myself. Well, I think it's pretty hilarious. So yeah, well, it's a good bit. Let's take a listen. Hi, my name is Lily Tomlin. I'm a rubber freak. <laughs> I can say it now. Of course, there was a time when I couldn't. When I look back on it all, I I think it started with rubber bands. I wasn't actually swallowing them in those days. I, I just sort of munched on them. Sometimes I'd take one and stretch it from one eye tooth to the other and sort of twang it. I told myself I was being creative. It was just a relaxing pastime. Then one day I sat down to write a lyric for one especially good tune I twanged. I... <laughs> that is a, that's a really hilarious bit. I think um, ahead of its time in its parody of the confessional. Yeah. Um, when you went to Laugh-In, Laugh-In is, was, is an interesting show in the history of comedy because it is a really interesting mix of this kind of new thing that was going on because it was, you know, when you went there, it was 1969 and like the most old fashioned thing that could possibly exist. Um, Like, you know, everything is psychedelic flowers and being silly. But on the other hand, um, on on the other hand, it feels like a vaudeville act. Yeah. But what did you think of the show when, when you, when you started on it? Well, um, I was probably full of myself, so I, I couldn't say that was too cool, but I because I had because I had a decided sensibility, comedy sensibility that I you couldn't push me off of sort. You know, I it's like I could easily uh, reject something because it was just it, I would be embarrassed to do it. I just if it made me laugh, if it made if it was interesting to me, that's that would be the the I guess the the watermark, but I wanted it to be about something, something I wanted it to be, you know, satirical and, or have something to say about something or be moving about something or, uh, just outrageously funny. Like the rubber freak was for me, all the controversy about what's addictive and what's an acceptable addiction and what isn't. And even so far as what's, you know, what's an acceptable sexual orientation, you know, because she says at the end, I'm not. I'm no longer a woman obsessed with an unnatural craving. I'm just another normal, socially acceptable alcoholic. Uh, so it was really, it was, it was a wonderful turn on the con- on the confessional and so on. But I felt it had other stuff too. I, I want to play a clip from you on Laughing, and your character Ernestine uh, was an immediate smash monster hit. Yeah, she on was. The show. Um, she is a telephone operator, um, and, and in this sketch, she is calling a customer who, who has unpaid bills. One ringy-dingy, two ringy-dingy. Oh, a gracious good afternoon, Mr. Beetle. I'm Miss Tomlin, your representative from the telephone company, and you owe us a balance of $23.64. When, when may we expect payment? It's, it's for three calls to Topeka, Kansas. You, you don't know anyone in Topeka, Kansas? Well, Mr. Beetle, that's, be, that's beside the point. Now, when may we expect payment? 
When, when, when what freezes over? No, no, Mr. Beadle, you are not dealing with just anyone's fool. I am a high school graduate. <laughs> What what was it like? I, I I know you were in production on the show for a while before. Yeah, I was. I went in. I started. I guess like in October, and then I didn't air until the last show of December. So what was it like when that happened, and then all of a sudden you were you were like a famous person? Yeah, well, Ernestine was famous at least. Uh, it was it was. Uh, you don't quite relate to it. You don't quite get it. Uh, I it aired on a Monday night. I was in New York because I was there doing publicity. For the for my entrance into the show and Monday night it aired and I saw it and I first I thought oh Ernestine's too big she's too broad and then I kept why I thought no I said no there's something about her that really works she's there's something real about her um, and then I went to the theater the next night so I wasn't anywhere near friends or anything and we didn't have email and stuff like that and I was in a hotel so I didn't really get phone calls that I can recall but the next night at the theater. I'm waiting outside for some friends to come, and I know people start walking up and down past me and looking and uh, decidedly looking at me. And it was so uncomfortable, and I thought, oh, my God. Uh, and then I began to – and so I didn't really – I didn't want to have to deal with it because I thought it was uh, it was just too embarrassing. But gradually over to then – then people get so – they'd be so disappointed if you said it's not me they, that you start to just embrace it. You know, and my mother got such a kick out of it. My dad, my dad particularly, and he died shortly after that. He died in 1970. So, but oh, he was so tickled when I was on laughing because it was such a big show, and uh, and he just really enjoyed it. You know, he'd tell everybody, "Who do you think this is?" And people would say, "Well, I guess it's your daughter," <laughs> <laughs> and he'd say, "Yeah, you're damn right." We were at a place, and they were living in Fort Wayne, Indiana, then, and we went to a place to have dinner. You know, like a just a tavern-like kind of place. And uh, and my dad, and there was a boy and a girl playing piano and singing. They were, had come up from Chicago or something, or down to from Chicago, and and they were coming over saying, "Is there anything we can play for you, Miss Tomlin?" And uh, and and uh, my dad say, "Son, do you know Froggy went a courting?" <laughs> <laughs> and then he says, and the boy says, "I don't know that." So my father goes, "Froggy went a courting." Um, um. <laughs> so then my dad says, "Babe, get up and sing a song." And I said, Daddy, I don't want, please don't make me sing. He said, Baby, you got to get up and sing a song for the people. <laughs> and I said, Daddy, I can't do it. Don't make me sing. And he says, Babe, you got to learn how to be popular. <laughs> I, never, I think he I, knew more about it than I did. I think for, for a lot of people that I talk to, there is really like a powerful moment in whatever is the thing that they do that means something to their parents. Like they will often have been working for 10 years oh, yeah. and sometimes even have been successful. Um, but then when they do something that that their parents get, it's a very powerful, it's a very powerful it, it, affirmation it really, it of somehow, this life that's they've the chosen. Moment that you're, that's the moment of your being catapulted into something recognizable. Like a lot of my family who are all from Kentucky – they didn't really kind of acknowledge me overly until I did the Glenn Campbell show. <laughs> I guest starred on Glenn Campbell. And then they were just all over the moon. <laughs> um, let's take a listen to one more character from Laugh-In. Um, this is e- Edith Ann. She's a five-and-a-half-year-old, and I think uh, folks who know the character will immediately picture it. Um, it's you 
normal sized you sitting in an enormous enormous rocket chair and and in this bit uh you're reading a story you've written or your edith ann is once upon a time yesterday <laughs> i went out into the backyard to play but i fell down instead <laughs> and i began to cry and I went inside to tell Barbara that I fell down, and she said, how did it happen? And I just shrugged my shoulders, because it was one of them accidents. You don't know how they happen. <laughs> and then she said, stop crying, Edith. You are a big crybaby. And then my feelings was hurt. And she put a Band-Aid on my knee, but it didn't help, because you cannot put a Band-Aid on your feelings. <laughs> and then Buster, my dog, came in. And then he went back out because he cannot stand to see me cry. <laughs> and then he was thirsty and his doggy bowl was in the kitchen, so I had to get up and let him in and I limped to the door. Because <laughs> my knee was weak and it couldn't support me and I fell down. <laughs> Plus, I had dropped some butter on the floor at breakfast. <laughs> and I just laid there and I almost fainted. <laughs> and then I came to... And then I got up and I started to write this story, but it was so sad I almost started to cry again, but I will not because it will not do no good. And then Barbara will say I was a crybaby, which I can prove I am not by that second fall, the end. <laughs> I, I read somewhere something about you saying that you developed this character specifically because you wanted to do a kid character. Well, why did you want to do a kid character? Well, as an actor, you just want to do a range of people, you know, just like I did men later and I've done teenagers. And I, I always was looking for a, another culture type to do just because it's it makes your own repertoire richer. You can make more con- – you can comment on more things. And There's something so sweet about her. I know. I love Edith so much. Do you, do you find yourself um, – uh, it's funny like i since since i've had a kid i've i've talked to people about this experience that you have that is cliched which is seeing the world through a child's eyes and um i feel even stupid just saying it out loud into a microphone but um it is actual and i i wonder if you ever had that experience with this character that because you were writing for and performing this character you sort of had an opportunity to see the world in an in an alternate way. Well, I I, I so much used uh, my own life. You know, I used my baby brother, and then I just put Edith in the middle. I made an older sister, so that I used all the stuff that that had occurred between my brother and me as an older sister and a baby brother. And then Edith, she had, she did to the baby brother what I did, and and Mary, and the older sister did to Edith what I what I did also. <laughs> Wait, it's all cockeyed, but nonetheless, Edith hey, we was got in the it. middle. No, we're on you know? it. Yeah, yeah, we're on board. And I used all this stuff with uh, my dad. And then, of course, Jane, that's the first thing I worked on with Jane. That's what, that's what I was about to ask you. was uh, my Edith album because Jane had written a thing. First thing she'd ever written that was material because she wanted to be a songwriter. And she'd written a, a long song, kind of like, I mean, now they do songs like American Pie and like a very long form song. And she'd written this song about a kid in Harlem. And uh, and her uh, it called Traffic Jam of Life, and her agent at that time said, "Why don't you turn it into a screenplay for television? You know, because they, a lot of stuff they were uh, buying for after after school, after school 
Yeah, after school specials. On CBS, right. And she wrote JT, and it got so much critical attention that they ran, they ran it every year for like 25 years at Holiday. And I saw it during one of those runs, and it was so wonderful in terms of this kid. And so it was tender and edgy and sad and funny and Every word was, I mean, every sentence, it was like a aphorism almost, and yet was totally naturalistic, totally moved character and plot and and was uh, just essenced. And it's always what I look for in a monologue. How can you create a culture type in three or four minutes and say something and fill it and and be entertaining and contentful at the it, same time? It's interesting to me that you say that because I think for most comics, and I know a lot of comics, many, many comics have been on the show, their goal is to get as many laughs as they can. And they have, not that they don't have other vision for it or they don't want to have social commentary or they don't want to whatever, but number one on the list is always most and most powerful laughs. <laughs> and that was like fifth on the list of things that you just said that that you wanted to bring Jane Wagner into your life for. And you, it's not something that you talk, you've talked about in terms of creating your characters when when we've talked just now? Well, um, you have to be entertaining, at least, even if it's, tra- if it's a, a tragedy. I mean, you have to somehow create the essence in such a way that people are fa- interested or they're drawn in. So um, I... Yeah, well, laughs are not, are not the first objective. That's true. But if you hit it right, it will be it will be funny or it will have enough humor in it that that it's entertaining on that level, um, and I watched you laughing. You laughed at the silly stuff. Oh, I, I'm not saying no, it's not I funny. Saw, no, I'm saying you, but you laugh at like a broad audience might not really laugh at like in the Rubber Freak. You were saying like an especially good two night twanged. I mean, that, that's just kind of ridiculous, you know, wonderfully ridiculous. And um, so, uh, I I don't even know where I'm going with this, but. Uh, Jane is a wonderful writer. I mean, extraordinary writer. And, you know, and I'm kind of a potchkeer, and I'll work on it and pitch and work on it and do something, get up and try it. And uh, and she always brought a much higher verbal level to a pe- to the pieces, pieces that I began to do later, like The Search and the two Broadway shows we did. And The, the two of you have been together romantically since the beginning of the 70s, which is like 40 40- some years now. It'd be 40, yeah, 42 years, March 31st. Which is amazing. Congratulations. Um, and I, I wonder if it was weird for you, um, especially in the 70s and, and into the 80s, that here you were working with this woman and living with her and like going to meetings together and whatever, uh, you know, just like living your life. In many ways, like you know, just just as you would, but at the same time, it was just so not a topic of conversation that two women would be together that you were, in a funny way, also closeted by almost by circumstance. Uh, to some extent, uh, you know, because just because of the culture and the time, the time of it, and uh, but not with anybody we knew. Uh, but we were doing specials at, uh, around that time, too, at CBS and ABC. And I'd even have writers who were good friends of ours who worked with us every day. And one of them said to me one morning, you know, maybe you and Jane should come to work in different cars. <laughs> and I said, well, now, 
we're not going to do that. And she said, well, people are talking. And I said, well, they just have to talk. You know, it's not like I was afraid of it. Um, I was more protective of my my mother, who was more Christian and fundamentalist, uh, because while my mother could uh, tolerate the... uh, the existence of us, my brother and me. I she, I don't know that she. There's an old. There's a short story by Marcella May called uh, "State of Grace," and in it, I. It's you know it's so true of so many humans. Then the this little guy who's very pious and he gets a halo before he dies, and his wife is just horrified because it makes them conspicuous. And she and she says and the writer says she preferred the approval of her concierge over her creator. <laughs> So I'm just saying that uh, that kind of thing always I knew it was uh, hard for my mother because her family, you know, that generation, my my generation, uh, my cousins and everything, the offspring of all those aunts and uncles, they're much more liberally minded. But that older generation, I mean, my mother died at 91. That was eight years ago. So all of our relatives, I mean, it was and it's southern too. that whole southern life uh and so much of it is Bible based. It's very difficult for them to be to have a broader view of anything. Did did you and Jane ever like discuss whether at some point you should come out in a big deal type way and become uh, celebrity lesbians? <laughs> well, um, this is all this is old news. I hate, but I'll tell it. Um, in uh, it was always uh, it was always there lurking in the background. People were interested, but particularly in the seventies, I think journalists tried to protect you, especially if they had regard for you. I mean, as artists or something, they would they were just like I, I was like in seventy five. We got a phone call. We were shoot, working on one of our albums actually, and Time wanted to do a cover story on being gay, uh, and they they asked my publicist if I would take the cover of time and come out in that big way. See, you know, Ellen didn't come out till 20 years later in 95. And, and even that was tough on her. So 75, I was more like, it wasn't because I was doing anything particularly that they were going to exploit. It was just me being gay is what they were going to exploit in our relationship. Uh, so I, I was kind of, I was torn because I, I thought it was important politically in some ways. Um, but I also was a little offended on an uh, on a artistic level that I would trade the cover for my personal life, you know. And uh, instead, I we put a piece on the album, which was uh, the header. You know, it's all it, the album was about being famous. It was called Modern Scream, and I was supposed to be being interviewed by a magazine interviewer. And at one point, she she so she and I had just done Nashville. And she interviews me about what was it like, you know, Lily, what was it like to see yourself uh, on the big screen making love to a man? And I said, you know, I've seen these women all my life. I know how they walk. (laughs) I know how they talk. And I just did a – we did a flip actually on all the interviews that uh, Cliff Gorman had done for Boys in the Band because he was straight. And it was risky for him to take that role in in terms of the audience. And he – so all we just flipped his interviews, basically. I hate to tell that to Cliff now, but um, and uh, 
and I and Vito Russo was a great friend of mine who was uh, a gay activist and who's and journalist who's now died. Uh, and when we called Vito and we all talked about it and we thought that was a good way to answer Time Magazine to put it on the album. Of course, nobody ever said a damn word about it or anything, and it was pretty funny. Yeah. But um, but that's been the story of my life. It's just like uh, something else. Oh, like when I hitchhiked to Detroit, I'm to Chicago. The other kids got expelled, and they just overlooked me. <laughs> Stick around. When we come back, I'm going to play some tape of Lily Tomlin just opening up the fire hose of grown-up words on director David O. Russell. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey everybody, it's me, Jesse, just breaking into our show with a little Max Fun Drive update. And hey, guess what? It's not just me. I'm also joined by Bullseye's two producers, Nick and Julia. Nick and Julia, say hi. Hey guys. Hey guys. First of all, I think a lot of people like to imagine that their favorite radio programs come fully formed from the minds and mouths of those show's hosts. <laughs> However, you guys... <laughs> You guys spend more time working on this show than I do, so I wanted to briefly get into what each of you do. Tell us a little bit about your job, Julia. Well, I mean, you know, we usually talk about the people that we'd like to have on the show and our favorite stuff, and then I go out there and talk to people's publicists and... Managers. Managers and TV networks. Friends that might have their email address. Yeah, friends who are willing to give up other friends' email addresses. And then, uh, you know, I work with them to find a time to get them on the show or, you know, to convince them that this is something that's worth their time. And this is a long process. I mean, we have Big Boy on next week, and it took you two years. You've been working on two years ago. I looked back in my emails. I found the emails from two years ago. So, yeah, I guess that is true. And here's another interesting thing about the show. I think a lot of people might imagine that uh, these guests come to us. And, And the truth is that because of the nature of our show, because we think of every guest that we book on the show as a recommendation... We, uh, the, sh- the guests that come to us out of pitches, someone who approaches us, maybe 15%, 10, 15%. Generally, what happens is we come up with an idea and then send Julia out in the field. Nick, what do you do on the show? Well, so once those re- interviews are recorded, we spend about an hour with a lot of guests. But the two interviews on the program are about 25 minutes and 15 minutes. And it's a matter of extracting the best few moments from each of those interviews so that you're getting the best parts of it. So I'm editing those. I'm also finding clips to support it, creating the rest of the show, some of our wildcard segments like... Uh, the song that changed my life or the cannonball segments it's really just kind of the the back end of the show making it fit into a fully formed hour of radio exactly and not just an hour of radio but when there's stuff that's in an interview that won't fit into the radio version of the show part of your job is cutting multiple versions of the show yes so that everyone who subscribes to the podcast doesn't have to feel like they're only getting the version that fits into 59 minutes for the radio yeah our soundcloud page has extended versions of all of these the podcast also has an extended cut well let's talk about giving. There are many levels to give to support MaximumFun.org and Bullseye. Uh, let's get straight into them. The $10 a month level is a friend of the family. You get our new MaxFun branded earbuds. I've been listening to those as I walk the dog every day. Quite a lovely set of uh, earbuds featuring the MaxFun rocket ship. $20 a month is the Diamond Friendship Circle. And I don't know how deep we can get into what you get for the Diamond Friendship Circle. It's called the Intimate Sensations Pack, 
And if you're 18 or over, you can go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and find out more about what's in it. And that pack is courtesy of our friends at ExtremeRestraints.com. They put together a very special group of things for anyone out there who enjoys intimate situations with other consenting adults. And if that makes you uncomfortable, then you can always go for our t-shirt. Yeah, you can just get a t-shirt. If you just want a t-shirt, go ahead. Just get a t-shirt. One of my favorite levels is the $35 a month Judge John Hodgman's Justice Squad level. This comes with a pair of really, really cool Maximum Fun tumblers or rock glasses. Yeah, these are really gorgeous. This is some classy stuff. We are running a very classy operation here. If you think that just because we're interested, we we like have a drink. Get to know a consenting adult. All of these, by the way, are cumulative. So at $35 a month, you get the rocks glasses and the intimate sensations pack and the earbuds. Take a little bit of time. Think about how much you listen to all the Maximum Fun shows. Bullseye plus Jordan Jesse Go plus our new shows, One Bad Mother and uh, Wham Bam Pow. All these shows. Think about just donating one night's out worth of money to Maximum Fun per month. And you get all this and it supports us. It supports Julia and me, Jesse, our work on the show. This is an important time for us. It's when we get to talk to our members and really connect with our audience, which is who we do the show for. And we thank those people who are making the show happen. There are already thousands of people who are making the show happen on a weekly basis. And we are so appreciative of them. And I know some of them are even planning to go out there this drive and, you know, upgrade their membership and give even a little bit more if they can. Here's the truth. We signed up with NPR. We are so excited to be with NPR. Uh, unfortunately, radio doesn't keep the lights on around here. We've got to come up with a couple hundred thousand dollars every year to make this show. And the way that we do it is through the generosity of people who listen di- and support directly. Basically, people like you. So you can go to MaximumFun.org slash donate to support us now. Thanks, guys. Let's get back to the interview. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the actor and comedian Lily Tomlin. In her new movie, Admission, she plays the feisty, unflappable mom to an uptight college admissions officer, played by Tina Fey. The movie's in theaters now. I, I want to f- fast forward to the past couple of years real quick. I was so happy when you showed up on one of my favorite shows. Oh, me too. Eastbound and Down. Yeah. Um, and you played Kenny Powers, the protagonist's mom. And Kenny Powers, the main character of Eastbound and Down, for folks who haven't seen it, is a sort of disgraced former Major League Baseball player, a man with boundless self-regard. I mean, <laughs> insane self-regard and a, and a majestic mullet and um, just a very vulgar way of being in the world and a little bit of sweetness in this, the very center of his heart. Um, and you played his mother, the place where he came from. We have a little scene. This is—I think this might be the first scene that we see you on the show. Um, you are—you're bowling with uh, uh, your friend, uh, who is your bowling partner here. So why don't you decide, Tammy? You want me to win by points or disqualifications? Well, whatever. I've got more important in my life than arguing with your dumbass. My famous baseball player son is coming for a visit with his new baby. And would this be the son that got bested doing steroids and had that prostitution scandal? <laughs> what I like about that character is... But I is, gave her a good punch, didn't I? Yeah, you sure did. <laughs> Sucker punched her. <laughs> what I like about that character is because you're the mother of this 
uh, of this human nightmare, Kim, Kenny Powers, you you get to do two things at the same time. And, and in a way, it's similar to what you do in admission, although um, <laughs> the morality of it maybe is different. But the, you get to be maternal and loving and just really sweet and human. And then you also just get to be completely ridiculous, like completely <laughs> outrageous, punch people, you know, like just whatever. Well, for my boy. Yeah. <laughs> I have to defend my son. Had you, had you seen the show when 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 the part came well, along? Well, here's the thing. I was I'm embarrassed to say I didn't even know about the show, and when I got the bid, I so I watched the first two years, and I just fell in love with you know Danny McBride and that character, and so I was just delighted. I, I had so much damn fun doing that show, and I was just I keep hoping it. I, th- I thought they were going to do a fourth season. I was hoping that I would get to do another stint as, as his mother. <laughs> Because it's really fun, you know. I can I can only imagine, and I I imagine that, and it, they're fun to work with. Those guys, they're really fun. The, the, I imagine that the, the that there's something similar in in your role in admission, which is your character in in admission is a mom. So you get to do some mom stuff, like you get to show some love and be kind, but you also get to just be outrageous. A little bit, yeah. Well, for me, I mean, taking that role, I love that uh, role when it was offered to me because um, I love, you know, someone at that point in her life, a feminist my age, who was noted, notable at some point, wrote a notable book, uh, celebrated. And then, of course, that fame withers a bit. Time moves on. Decades pass. And she's created this mythology around herself because she was so idealistic and so committed to the feminist doctrine and she's even imposed it on her daughter and created this this wedge between them. So this overlay of admission uh, for everybody in the in the play was uh, so important. You know, the the slug line even has let someone in. Have you forty years on from uh, from the peak of your idealism when you were you know turning down laughing and stuff like that? <laughs> Um, and phone commercials. And- yeah, how, how do you how do you regard that you as as the you that you are now? Um, well, I probably um, I don't regret that. I mean, that that was acted. That's totally authentic. It act, I acted out of you know. I burst in when I heard that they'd offered me a lot of money to do phone phone company commercials. I burst into tears because I thought that totally negated me as a satirist or as a, anybody making comment on anything. I thought they think that money that I'll you know. So it was never quite. I didn't have to suffer over it or turmoil. Oh God, I want the money, but you know, I had no trouble turning it down at that moment. Uh, whether I would have taken it later in life, I can't be sure because it hasn't been offered. But um, I even went so far as to do that special, Lily Sold Out, about going to Vegas for the money. because Is that the one where you get fired out of the cannon? Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I do finally take it. I convinced myself I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it for uh, political reasons. You know, what better place to do a, a piece? I'm going to do my Seven Ages of a Woman. As my nightclub act, and of course, I totally corrupted into a big Vegas act, like Anne Margaret or Cher. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor and comedian Lily Tomlin. She plays Tina Fey's mom in the new movie Admission. It's in theaters now. There's there's one thing that I feel like I I can't let the interview pass without discussing, and I've 
I feel a little bit ridiculous because I have let the interview pass without discussing, for example, your Oscar-nominated role in Nashville. But there is, uh, uh, some years ago, this video clip of you um, having a disagreement with director David oh, O. David, Russell sure. on the set of I Heart Huckabees was released on the internet. It was not the first public conflict with director David O. Russell. Brilliant director. Brilliant, and I David love Russell. him. Um, I'm I'm gonna play I'm gonna play a little bit. Oh, of it. Can you play the language? Well, we'll beep it out or, or okay. whatever. That's why we spent five and five or six hours doing something else. No, damn it, you it up, damn you. Now get straight out and help. If you can't if you can't help them, help me. So what was going on? I this was like this was totally amazing to me. I've 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 loved all of David O. Russell's movies and all of your work. And David O. Russell has a reputation for unusual message, methods, which he burnished in the course of making this film. Um, what, what was going on? Oh, well, I was uh, – um, well, we were doing a scene in a car that later didn't make it into the movie because it kind of hadn't – it was – the movie, you know, he's a very um, mercurial, wonderful, inspired guy. And – that whole during that whole, the making of that movie, he was in the habit of like lying on a chaise, <laughs> sometimes in his in his, tr- in his shorts, his boxer shorts, with a megaphone yelling at us, you know, to do this or do that. And it was hot, and we'd been in the car for all day before lunch, and and nothing was going right. It was just all this and that and whatever. Isabel Hopper and Dustin and Hoffman and I were in the front seat, and Naomi Watts and Mark Wahlberg were in the back seat, and. I was completely lost. I and so I at lunch I said to David, David, let's look at the video and tell me what's you see working, what's working in this scene, because everybody was playing it differently. And uh, Dustin had turned to me at one point and he said, "I'm going to play this like Stan Laurel." Well, it was a it was a movie with a mixed tone. It was. If it had a weakness, and I it adored, was. Oh, I didn't see. I didn't think it had a weakness at all. I I love the movie so much, but here, but on this particular day. And then I barely got st- – and then all my coverage had – I had but not been covered. I was just, you know, peripheral all that morning. So I had a good chance to find out what would work if he would help me. And as soon as I started speaking on my cue, he started yelling at me saying, you know, come on, Tomlin. The, I don't know what he was saying. He was berating me about something. And I just flipped out on the first go-round. Would you would you go back and do another movie with David Russell oh, if he gave you the chance? Yes, absolutely. We made up two minutes later. I mean, it's not <laughs> like anything. I mean, we're we're tempered. We're you know we were we were frazzled and hot tempered, and it was a hot day. And you know, I and I when it happened, I was doing an interview with the Miami Herald in, in the morning, and they said, "What do you think about the YouTube video?" And I said, "Well, I don't know," because it was four years after the movie. I said, what is it? And I knew that the video existed because I'd heard agents were look, had looked at it over the years. <laughs> <laughs> but I, so then the guy said, he said, the, he said, it's from Huckabee's. And I said, oh, I said, well, is it the car or is it the office? <laughs> and he said, both of them. Well, it's like one of the all-time great things. I don't know if you've ever heard that, that sound, that video of uh, or that audio recording of Paul Anka uh, yelling at his band. And he says, Oh, I'm gonna slice, and when I slice, I slice like a f-ing hammer. <laughs> no, but we're so goofy and so embarrassed. Uh, and I said, I, I said, I'm sure David, whatever the video, because I had not seen it, 
I said, well, whatever it is, what can I say about it? I, I did it. You know, there's nothing more to say. And I said, I, I imagine David and I are both a little chagrined that we that it got caught on tape and then distributed. Well, Lily, I've taken up far too much of your time, but thank you so much for joining me on Bullseye. Thank you. Uh, well, I enjoyed it too, but God knows what I've said. <laughs> Actress Lily Tomlin can be seen in the movie Admission with Tina Fey. It's in theaters now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. From time to time on the program, we are joined by our friend Davey Rothbart, the Point guard of Found Magazine, Found Superstar, now the author of a brand new book called My Heart is an Idiot. Davey, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Jesse. It's great to have you here. So, Davey, let's talk about where these finds that we're about to uh, delve into come from. These are pieces of paper found on the ground, found on the street, on the floors of city buses and bowling alley parking lots, prison yards, sent to us from all around the country by finders. So I have a few brand new ones to share with you and some all-time favorites. Oh, fantastic. Well, let's get right into it. All right, so this one was found on the streets of Brooklyn, New York. My friend picked this up. It's written to a guy named Delane. And it says, Dear Delane, you and I are just friends. That's the way I wish to remain. I like you, but only as a friend. I would be happy if this doesn't affect our bond as friends. Please understand, it's not because you're not handsome enough. It's just because you and I are friends and that's it. The reason you can't be my boyfriend is because I'm not as attracted to you as you are to me. To be honest, I just want us to be friends, that's all. It's your choice whether you want to be my friend or not. Signed, Julia. P.S. Let's just be friends. <laughs> so the woman that found this says she, she wonders if Delane ever got the subtle hint that Julia just wanted to be friends. I like that, that she dropped in that P.S. <laughs> exactly. You know, just, you know, they just want to add a little wrinkle Make to it. Make it absolutely clear. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um... So many of the finds that we get revolve around love and relationships. So I've got a few like that. And this one came from Portland, Oregon. It seems like it's a, a guy who's counseling his friend who's in the early, early stages of a relationship. He's just trying to give him some advice. So he says, don't rush things. Be her friend first. Take her out for lunch. Ask her, would you like to go out for lunch? My treat. Please. Come on, please. So I like how he's <laughs> anticipating rejection for his friend before he's even really had a chance. Yeah, but I mean, he is encouraging him in that context, in the context of the why, why, does he, why, yeah, why does he think he's going to have to beg for it? Davey, can we address the fact that these notes, which have been found on the street and then photocopied, are you carrying the same literal photocopy from town to town? Because it looks like you are holding a hundred-year-old book, this pile of photocopies. So, so, some, of these, some of these are photocopies of the originals. Some are the originals. But, um, yeah, we went to 79 cities last fall, and, you know, you might get a little beer spilled on one. Another one <laughs> might, uh, you know, be blowing down the street and God you have to forbid, go, go should, and grab it. God forbid you should go to Kinko's again. Okay, what's, <laughs> what's our next one? This, this one. It looks like you've got some receipts in your hand now, Davey. My friend John Tucker, he lives in my hometown, Ann Arbor, Michigan. He is talented at finding interesting receipts. So a couple years ago he gave me this one. It just has four items on it. It says, gun, gun, ski mask, nerds. <laughs> Sounds like an interesting afternoon. <laughs> and a month later, my same friend, John Tucker, he's walking down the street and he sees this receipt. It says, he picks it up and it says, chicken ramen noodles, 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 12 pack lubricated condoms. <laughs> 
12 pack of condoms sounds like an interesting night. That guy's living yeah. the high life. That's what you need. <laughs> 10 packs of chicken ramen noodles and some condoms. All right, here's here's one last find I got to share with you today, Jesse. This one came from Michigan, my home state. And, you know, times have been tough economically there. And if, if, you, if you lose your job, if you get laid off, you can apply for unemployment benefits. Happened to my dad several times when I was growing up. But um, you, have to, you have to legitimately be laid off. You can't quit a job. You can't get fired and think you're going to start getting these monthly checks. So what was found here is this, this typed-up kind of official letter. And it's, it's written to a guy named uh, Mr. McLennan. And it, it's from the state of Michigan. It's, so it's sort of like he must have applied for these benefits. And this is the state of Michigan's response to him. This was found on the street in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It says, Dear Mr. McLennan, your employer has not indicated that shortages was your reason for discharge. Stated you played with matches and set fire to paper in a trash can. Set fire to reports. <laughs> wrote obscene graffiti on the paperwork, calendars, and posted signs. You engaged in horseplay. Pouring <laughs> ammonia on dry ice in the back room, which caused the dry ice to explode. You twirled a broom and hit a customer on the head. Signed, Mr. Hartline. So I don't think this guy's going to start getting his benefits anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Davey Rothbard is the editor of Found Magazine. They're on issue number eight in stores now online at foundmagazine.com. And Davey's brand new book of uh, writing is called My Heart is an Idiot. I'll talk to America's favorite astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson, after a break. Maybe he can convince me not to be so afraid of outer space. Seems unlikely, though. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, gang, it's me, Jesse. I hope you like checking in with Davey Rothbart. We have been, we have been talking to Davey Rothbart now for literally a dozen years. Uh, between Bullseye and The Sound of Young America since a- issue one of Found Magazine. Always a joy to talk with Davey. And we've got Neil deGrasse Tyson coming up in just a second, but we wanted to take a break for a second and talk about the Max Fund Drive. This is how we pay the bills. This is how we keep the lights on. This is how Julia and Nick, who are sitting here with me, are uh, able to buy their nightly can of SpaghettiOs. Hey, guys. <laughs> I didn't say, I said I pay him. I didn't say I pay him that much. <laughs> I'm hungry now, SpaghettiOs. <laughs> let's let's talk about why Bullseye is special because I get emails from people who, you know, I just got an email yesterday from a listener who told me that she cried through a segment of the show. Um, and I, that's how I know that what we're doing really affects you. And that means everything to me and us, you know, like... We could be out there being accountants or working in hog futures if we wanted to do something for the money. <laughs> I'd be a terrible accountant. <laughs> That's true. You'd be really good at hog futures, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the interviews are just special here. We do this because we care about it. You, you think about the Lily Tomlin conversation we just had. I mean, that's a long conversation with a legend, a living, acting legend. And we get into things that don't happen in other interviews. You hear more about Lily Tomlin here than you hear about her anywhere else. And then, on the other hand, there's interviews with folks you might never have heard about and only learn about from Bullseye. Yeah, we like to think of Bullseye as... As a recommendation show, and we include not just the literal recommendations at the top of the show uh, or and at the bottom of the show, but 
Also, we handpick our interviews. We never book someone on the show that we don't care about ourselves, that we don't think is recommendable to you. And that means that, you know, sometimes we leave on the table someone with a great personal story but not that great work or, you know, somebody that uh, is in the news a lot or is controversial or is famous for the sake of being famous. But what we want to do is talk to people who make amazing work. And we know that because you listen, you appreciate that. And that's why we hope that you'll support the show at MaximumFun.org slash donate. We know you listen. You're listening right now during the pledge breaks. We know you like the show and we know that you want to support us. So now is the time. And there's easy ways to give. You can give at $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, $35. There's levels. There are all kinds of levels. Absolutely. It's easy to donate. All you have to do is go to MaximumFun.org slash donate. And hey, once you've done it, why not brag about it on Twitter? Did you know that we're giving away a trip to Los Angeles to the person who does the best tweet with the hashtag MaxFunDrive? I did not know that. Yeah, that is true. We totally are. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> Julia, um, Julia, what um, kind of prizes do we have? Let's remind people about the prizes we have. Well, at $10 a month, you're going to get Rocketship earbud headphones with the Rocketship emblazoned on the side. $20 a month, the Intimate Sensations kit or a Rocketship t-shirt. And at $35 a month, you're going to get a nice addition to your liquor cabinet, the uh, engraved rocks glasses. Right, and those are cumulative, so at the highest level you get all the previous gifts. We've had a lot of interest this year also in Jesse's Golden Eagles and Jordan's Platinum Angels, our $100 and $200 a month levels. Uh, at, at the Jesse's Golden Eagles level, which is 100 bucks a month, we will, a different Max Fun talent person, will pick something and send it to you every month books cds movies every month it's like a culture club except that we didn't want to call it the culture club because that's the name of a band from the 80s <laughs> that sounds really cool it is no i'm i am super i'm like excited about picking stuff to send people i am leaning right now towards this book called the big con about con men in the 40s uh-huh. but i have not decided 100 percent. I, I might send a rap cd or something and the next level up you're part of a really exclusive club of folk oh people. yeah you get to go to boatparty.biz yeah. the atlantic ocean comedy and music festival absolutely 100 percent on us it is uh, it is an amazing, amazing cruise with some amazing comedy and music performers, including our friends Mark Marin and Maria Bamford and John Darneal, uh, John Roderick, lots of other folks. You can find out more information about that at BoatParty.biz. But no matter what level you support us at, the important thing is that if you like this show, get up off a few bucks because, you know, we give it out for free because we trust that if you like it, you'll support it. So it's easy. MaximumFun.org slash donate. And now is the time to give because now is when we're going to get extra money from challenge grants. Now is when we're going to meet our goal of a thousand new members. And now is the time to really just step up and show us, yes, keep doing this. I like it. Yeah. And maybe if you're already a donor, and thank you for being a donor, but maybe you've uh, been listening more this year. Maybe you've listened to some of the new shows. That's always a good time to upgrade your donation. Yeah. Thank you so much for supporting MaximumFun.org and supporting Bullseye. Uh, all you have to do is go to MaximumFun.org slash donate. Thanks, guys. Stay tuned for Neil thank deGrasse you. Tyson. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's been more than 40 years since humans first walked on the moon. It's also been more than 40 years since humans last walked on the moon. Should we go back? What about Mars? Does space even matter? Neil deGrasse Tyson's answer is yes. He's the director of the Hayden Planetarium and one of America's most beloved and passionate advocates for science. In his new book, Space Chronicles, he says space inspires us like nothing else, and we need to get back out there. Neil deGrasse Tyson, welcome back to the show. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. 
Okay, so this is... Well, I just got to know, did you invite me back because an asteroid just hit you know, a few weeks ago? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, this is part of our program. I actually, we just had some roofers on the show, and it was <laughs> shortly after my roof started leaking. You know, I mean, you need the reminder, the shot across your bow, that maybe you got to bring an astrophysicist back. Yeah, just once in a while, just mm. check in <laughs> when it seems like all life on Earth may be destroyed by a space monster. Then we're your best friend, for sure. Um, I have a ser- I have a question about space for you, and maybe this is a stupid question, but um, when I am afraid of space, are you afraid of space? I Not don't... like in a literal sense. <clears throat> I mean, obviously, you'd be afraid of space because you can't breathe there and you would die. But I have a very hard time thinking about anything that big. Mm. So the infin- without being very upset, the infinitude of it all. Yeah, yeah. Well, kind of what part part of what makes the universe an extraordinary topic to talk about at any time of day, especially like over a beer at a bar, <laughs> is it it re- it represents the extremes of anything your brain can possibly comprehend. Extremes in temperature and pressure and density and radiation and speeds. And, and and so it completely disturbs the tranquility of your life experiences and what you would ever call common sense. And by the way, I, I enjoy that state of mind. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, what I, that's what I was wondering about because that to me is genuinely terrifying. And I wonder if... One of the Why things... can't it just be mysterious? Why does it also have to be terrifying? Oh, because mystery is terrifying to me. Oh, so you... I want certitude. Oh, uh, okay. So you represent actually quite a big chunk of the population that is not content with not knowing, that they've got to have an answer to everything. And I, I can't fault you for that. I think it must be fundamental to what it is to be human, to to not walk around steeped in ignorance, right? You want to feel that certitude of all that you know and all that you see and all that you think of. And so I won't fault you for that. But what I will try to do is open your eyes to how beautiful things are, even when you don't understand them, and how the act of not understanding them, the fact of not understanding them, is itself a kind of a force of seduction for those who are curious about the frontier of our ignorance, and they want to sort of eradicate that frontier and bring knowledge and insight and wisdom into our knowledge base. I think that when I think about space, or also this happens when I go to the beach and I look out at the ocean and it stretches out to the horizon, and I think about how far it goes, it reminds me that I'm going to die. Yeah, you should just never leave home. I think this is (laughs) just have a glass of milk and a chocolate chip cookie, dip it in the milk, and you'll be fine. <laughs> what made you want specifically to be uh, an astrophysicist? The universe itself, right? People say, oh, what teacher? What the-? No, the universe. I, my first visit to the Hayden Planetarium, my local planetarium here in New York City, and they dimmed the lights and the stars came out. And this is round ceiling, which was a little weird, and a big cozy chair. And the stars came out and they called to me. And I've never been the same since. Why not like the undersea world or something like that? Oh, sure. The undersea world is cool. Who, who doesn't love... And in my day, it was Jacques Cousteau was everybody's under, undersea guy. Uh, but I think the universe itself, 
I used to think I was biased, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. The universe trumps it all. All right, so I'll give you an example. Suppose you want to you stand up in front of eighth graders and say, who wants to go in a submersible with me down to the deepest part of Earth's crust, the Marianas Trench off the coast of the Philippines, and we're going to see exotic life forms that maybe have never been seen before? Okay, so you'll get some, a show of hands, and that's kind of cool, right? And you'll say it's dangerous and it's fun and exciting. I said, I stand up, and I say, we are going to drill a hole through the ice in one of Jupiter's moons, Europa, and reveal beneath that an ocean of liquid water that's been liquid for a billion years, and there might be life that has never existed on Earth that has been formed unto itself. Who's with me? And then I win everyone that you just got. I, I, I win every time. <laughs> okay. Who wants to study Earth and its volcanoes? That, that's cool. All right. Who wants to study Olympus Mons, the largest volcano in the solar system, and it's on Mars? I win again. All right. So, so the, the, the universe, everything that's outside of our, our sky, has an extraordinary capacity to stimulate ambition. In fact, I'd like to think I'd like to rename NASA the Department of Ambition. How about that? All right, not the National or Aviation Space Administration, the Department of Ambition, because I don't know any other agency that can trigger a sense of a, a dream state the way NASA can. And I'm not just making this up. Just but think about it. Think about it. When there was talk of not funding the fifth repair mission, for, servicing mission for the Hubble telescope, the public cried out, said, no, those are my photos. I paid for those. And they're on my screensaver and my desktop. And you are, you are going to fix that again so this can continue. Whole people came of age with the Hubble telescope. So there's a public outcry, and the public came to defense of a scientific instrument. I don't think that's ever happened in the history of the world. And that's, the, that's space. And the Hubble pictures are so beautiful, you don't even need a caption in order to interpret their beauty for yourself. I don't know any other field that can show a picture of anything except maybe botany where you can look at it and be struck by its beauty and not require a caption to guide you. That's the universe for you. Was there ever a time when you thought you wouldn't or shouldn't become an astrophysicist? Oh, yeah. Excellent question there. I mean, given the time in which I grew up, which was considerably more evolved from the time that my parents grew up. But in the time that I grew up, um, no one was supportive other than my parents and immediate family. No one, not teachers, not principals, not guidance counselors, no one who mattered in my educational trajectory was supportive of my interests. And I think it was a mismatch between expectations. I don't they weren't explicitly disinterested. It was kind of implicitly. It was, oh, why do you want to join the physics club? You know, you look, you're pretty athletically built. Why don't you join the track team or the, this team? There was, the forces were operating where it became clear that me, that my interest in astrophysics was a path of most resistance. And of course, uh, my skin color was not highly represented among people who studied astrophysics. It was much darker than what was commonly viewed. But among athletes, it was, would fit right in, wouldn't it? And so I was constantly told that I could or should be an athlete. And, 
And meanwhile, I knew and I told them, no, I want to do physics. I want to do astrophysics. And somehow that just didn't even settle into their – they had no receptors for it. So there's a kind of an implicit resistance to my interest in dreams as I grew up. But it ran deep within me. And so I stepped around it, dug under it, climbed over it, and I stayed persistent. When were you the closest to um, taking another path? Taking a different path? Yeah. Uh, I would say there's a point where things weren't working out in my first choice graduate school and I had to switch and there was a time when I was living in my parents' basement and I had no academic affiliation and uh, it was it, it was a it was a low point. You know, people see you know I've had people, teachers and administrators and educators come up to me and say, "Oh, you're smart and you're this and you've got A's and you're and they had a completely incorrect understanding of my life's trajectory. They assume that I could have only gotten to the where I am if I'd gotten straight A's in every class and every teacher said, hey, he'll go far. And no, that's not my academic trajectory. There is no teacher who ever told me, I'll go far. It was clear, once again, that I was, going, I was on a path of most resistance. And, and, and no one other than immediate family and my own, my own rational assessment of my talents, right? You don't want to delude yourself. Then you're just setting yourself up for failure and disappointment. But my own rational assessment, I saw others in the field and I saw my talent. No, I wasn't the best, but I knew I wasn't the worst. And if I'm in the middle, I ought to have a slot somewhere in the middle. And if I'm not even allowed there, then something is wrong with the system and I've got to keep fighting. And so, so yeah, that, so that was a low point. But I, I still was headed where I was headed. Uh, the only problem is I had to convince someone else to agree with me. And it was at that point that Columbia University took me on. And I finished my Ph.D. there. And uh, the other institution uh, came after me later and said, how come you don't mention that you spent some years with us? I said, because it didn't work out there. Did you read the records? And then they apologized about it and wrote a whole article with me as the cover story in their alumni magazine as one that got away. You know, people write about you if you become well-known. And... So anyhow, I don't even think about it anymore because I, I, I was pretty laser focused the whole the whole way. What do you have to give up to be that laser focused on something as demanding as astrophysics? I, I have a friend who is who I guess is just finishing his PhD at Emory in um, uh, in a kind of philosophy that involves neurobiology that I do not understand and. The the commitment that he has to his academic work is is beyond what I can imagine, and I imagine that it, it must have been very similar for you when you were um, working on an astrophysics PhD at Columbia. Well, there's a there's a saying, and forgive me, if I forgot the author who first penned this, but it was something, and I'll only get paraphrase it because I don't remember it exactly. It was something like the academic is the person who has found something more interesting than sex. <laughs> <laughs> and see, the academic, I can speak specifically for the physical sciences, in particular physics and, and astrophysics, where if you have any occasion to go back to the lab or to go back to, the, to your work, you take it. If you say, oh, we're going out and having fun tonight. No, I'm going back to the lab. Nope. Mm -hmm. no, no, you'll take some breaks. It's not a complete crazy time. But uh, consider that your love for the subject 
is as great or greater than anything else you could love in the world. So when people say, oh, you need a break, come take a vacation. Vacation, this is, this is my, but I'm doing what I love. That's my vacation, all right? If I'm sitting on a beach doing nothing, all I'm going to be doing is thinking about what I could be doing in my lab. So, so, so I think the lesson there is pick a job. I mean, this has been said before, pick a job that you would do for free and make it your career. Uh, pick a job where a vacation from it is something unthinkable, and then you'll never lead an unhappy day in your life. Can you give me an example of something that you that you studied as a research scientist that was so compelling to you that you would give up the chance to take a vacation, like go hang out on a beach? Uh, I, let me give a different example, which sure. it would answer the same. I went, in my day, my I was alive and conscious when the Rubik's Cube first hit the scene. And I saw an early one in college, and it was a math uh, major friend of mine who had it. It was an intriguing object. It wasn't yet commercially available or widely available. Finally, they became available, and I got a hold of one in graduate school. And I aimed to solve the Rubik's Cube. And it took me, I would say, two weeks. I must have invested, you know, 100 hours. How many hours are in the week? Add more, and that's how many hours I put in in, in the two weeks. (laughs) Uh, And I finally solved it. And this was to the exclusion, essentially, to the exclusion of personal hygiene, of homework sets that were due, of social, prior social uh, commitments. And I just thought it was intriguing. There's only, you know, how many? 90, it's 27 cubes on it. You can't even see the middle one. And how hard could it be? So I tried it, and I finally solved it. And, uh, and that, was a, that is metaphor for me, for my life. By the way, by the way, you could buy a book and then you can learn how to solve it rather quickly. But then you didn't figure it out. You see? So so you can boast that you can solve the Rubik's Cube for having read the book, but you won't get to boast that you, that you figured out how to solve it. And and I've never read any solution books to the Rubik's Cube. And the fastest I could do it is maybe nowadays I'm a little rusty, so about three minutes. In my day, I could probably do it in a I found my personal best was 76 seconds. There are people out there that do it in like 14 seconds, this sort of thing, which is amazing. It's just that people do it with their feet. People do it blindfolded. There are all kinds of things that people do. But for me, the fact that I solved it without a book was a statement that no matter how insurmountable a task is, if you solve it, you are in a new place intellectually and emotionally in your life. And you solve it on your own capacity to deduce steps that would lead to an answer. And uh, so much of life is shortcutted because people simply want the answer rather than embrace the solution, the path, the solution paths that would get them there. And the, the richness of life, the joy of life comes from knowing and having figured out how to do things and how to know things. That's where that's where you rise up over the rest of the world that just simply memorized facts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the astrophysicist Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Basically, anytime you see an astrophysicist on TV, it's Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's the director of the Hayden Planetarium and the author of Space Chronicles, Facing the Ultimate Frontier. The book's out now in paperback. What do you think would be a great thing 
for the United States government to be pursuing with regard to space? Uh, let me back that up one notch and sure. repose the question. What is the most efficient way for the government to re-engage its electorate in dreaming about tomorrow the way we did for many decades in the 20th century? So I take my cue from that and I say what the government can do is create for itself a healthy NASA that is not simply driving around the block as it had done for 30 years with the shuttle program. What it would do is extend the space frontier in every direction. People say, well, where should we go next? And it's not about next. It's about everything. It's about turning the solar system into our backyard. And when you do that, you choose to go to the moon because that's where you're going on a tourist jaunt. And you you go to an asteroid because you're going to mine it. You go to the, uh, Mars because we're still doing interesting science there. You go to one of the Libration Lagrangian points because you can build huge structures there in empty space where all forces of gravity and, and other centripetal forces balance. And, and take on space as just simply the next frontier. And when you do so, you will have to innovate. You get to compare and contrast a universe with Earth. You can't claim to understand anything if you have a sample of one. And right now we have a sample of the Earth. Perspectives grow, insights deepen, and you transform the culture in which you live. And so that you have some assurance that in the 21st century, you'll have the economic strength that, that prevailed in the time of your parents. I guess the one thing that worries me, and I imagine it's something that you've thought of, is that when the richest and most powerful people in the world, you know, whether it's the United States or other first world countries or whatever, have pushed forward into frontiers historically, it's generally been to kind of assert dominion over them. I guess I'm worried about that in space. And there's a part of me that just thinks that just thinks maybe we should just let it be. <laughs> okay. So th those are excellent concerns. And uh, I'm equally as skeptical of the conduct of, and motivation of human uh, behavior, uh, as you ha in, implied in that, in, in, your, in your question. So I want to put that out on the table up front. I can tell you that the last time we went in space, we were driven by war. It wasn't because we were explorers and discoverers or somebody said in Congress, it's in our DNA, let's do it. It was, we are responding to a perceived communist threat. Communism was already a bad name. Now they're besting us in technology. Almost every achievement that we logged in space in the 1960s and 70s was in reaction to uh, was in reaction to what Russia did or said they were going to, going to do. Of course, I mean the Soviet Union. We were not really pioneers in that era. We did a few things first. Most things we reacted to. And so, and no one, at least I don't want war to be the motivator of great scientific and technological achievements. But I'm happy to say that in a capitalist world, money is also a driver. Money drives almost as effectively as the threat of dying from war. So it, a properly managed investment in space can simply bring wealth to the greatest number of people. 
if it's properly managed and thought through and would not end in subjugation. Yes, we would lead the world, but uh, and we have more money than other people, but uh, other, we would there'd be ways to share that. You, you, you get an educated world so everybody is a participant on that space frontier. Now, if that's not possible because humans simply can't be trusted, there's a, there's a silver lining to this. Almost all occasions where humans sought dominion over other humans, it had to do with access to resources. Had to do with access to oil, access to salt, if you go back far enough, 150 years. It was all about salt. So uh, you go back through time, and it's all about access to resources. Well, space has unlimited resources, period. If you call an asteroid the size of a house to Earth, uh, and if it's the right, if it's a correctly chosen one, it can have more platinum on it than has ever been mined in the history of the world. More gold on it than is ever, if you get the right size asteroid, more gold than has ever been mined in the history of the world. Talk about access to resources. When that happens, even if there are commercial ventures to bring it, there's so much of it that the scarcity that has historically led to human to human violence, there's a chance it could all go away. And I'm being a little wishful thinking here, hopeful in this, but. Look at the wars fought over access to energy, yet the sun is essentially a limitless supply of energy. And we're fighting, we're killing each other over pulling oil out of, from beneath where you happen to be standing. But I'll kill you to get access to it. This is, this is nasty business down here on Earth. And there are people here saying, I don't care about space. I'm just going to look down and I'll solve all my problems. No, you're not. No, you're not. Earth is a limited place. It's a speck. In orbit around an undistinguished star in, an, in, a, in a rather ordinary sector of the Milky Way galaxy. And so the more you can understand that and embrace the rest of what the universe can offer you, I think there's the capacity to transform how we treat one another as a species. If, if you could go to space, how, how would you choose to go? Oh, like, I go to Mars. Where would you choose? I bring to the go? whole family to Mars on a like spring vacation. <laughs> that would just what, be cool. Wouldn't you all get like uh, super irradiated and and sick on the way? Isn't that part of the deal about going to Mars? All right. So you know why you'd get super radiated? Because the way we now get you to Mars is we launch you from Earth and then you coast there. And you coast, it takes about nine months to coast. And in order for you to launch and coast back to Earth, you have to wait till Earth and Mars are repositioned in their respective orbits. And that's about a year, two years later. And so now you launch back. So the whole round trip is four and a half, five years. Over that time, yeah, look, look at your susceptibility to solar flares and cosmic rays and other things that will mess with your DNA to prevent it from copying itself accurately. And so most of those copy errors would and in death. So what you really want is a space program that has filling stations along the way. And that way you can accelerate there and not just coast. If you accelerate to Mars, you'll get there in a week instead of in nine months. Spend some time there, come back, you can get the whole round trip done in a year. You could do that during solar minimum, which will reduce the impact of the sun's uh, ionizing radiation on you, or do it at some other time because it's also bad radiation from the center of the galaxy. So you'd have to sort of choreograph this in a way that minimizes the risk. But uh, the very concern that we have to be aware of, of radiation is the consequence of not thinking this fully through. 
And to shield yourself, all you need is rock or water. So you can imagine a spaceship that's lined with water. In fact, there's a design recently I just read about where the spaceship is lined with feces. <laughs> if you're gonna, <laughs> that's got a material like substance. Like a carnival cruise ship. <laughs> it's lined with material substance plus fluid, and, uh, liquid. There's a lot of water and feces. And that way you can protect yourself if your voids last a long time. So it's way more costly for in terms of fuel, but you'll get there very quickly and get to come back minimizing that risk. Do you think you'll get to go to space sometime in, in your personal lifetime? You no, personally? I'm too old. I'm, I'm too old. And nowadays when people say space, they mean in low Earth orbit. When I say space, I mean take me somewhere. Take me to a destination that goes beyond Earth's surface. Now we're talking. Well, I'm a little younger than you. If I get invited... I'll tell him to bring you two. How about that? <laughs> You're scared. You need su- <laughs> you need support. You're, I need you, you to you, tell me about calculus on the way. You can't even look at a freaking ocean horizon. You're not going into space. <laughs> <laughs> Call me when you can like look at the horizon without tearing up, and then maybe we can talk. <laughs> we'll... <laughs> no, you're taunting me. <laughs> Well, Neil, I'm glad you were. I'm glad you weren't on Columbus's voyage. That would you would have been like <laughs> such a killjoy, you know. That is the edge of the earth. Oh my gosh! <laughs> it's like throw this man overboard and keep going. Neil, I'm glad I wasn't on Columbus's voyage too. I don't think it was very fun. <laughs> like by the by the by the fourth tooth that fell out. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> I would have been. <laughs> oh, from scurvy, right? I would have been like, get me back to Spain. I want some tapas. Yeah, that was a. Uh... A, a, a high-level nutritional reference by the time of your fourth tooth. <laughs> well, Neil, I, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time uh, to be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. Okay, excellent. And, you know, uh, the universe is for us all. And so thanks for uh, helping me spread that love. Neil deGrasse Tyson is the author of Space Chronicles, Facing the Ultimate Frontier. It's out now in paperback. Every week on the show, we close with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. So I will admit all of the bad stuff that they say about baseball is true. It's slow and boring. It's sort of yesterday's news. Fat guys are good at it. But that doesn't change how I feel about opening day. Opening day is wide open. It's possibility. Whether your team's the Royals or the Yankees, you're tied for first place. Everybody's in the first division. It's springtime, the weather's warming up, the flowers are blooming, the grass looks gorgeous, there's bunting up everywhere, the ball players are out there on the field doing their stretches. There's a new guy who is hot in spring training, there's an old guy who's still playing his way into shape. You're with your family and the people who are from where you're from and love what you love, even if it's just a baseball team, and, and you have this unity of purpose, because this year could be the year. Okay, nothing matches that sort of downtown flash of basketball. It's fast and lithe and beautiful. And I know that football is America's new favorite sport. And look, I love a just really brutal crushing hit from a safety or or a running back pulling away from the linebackers and headed towards the secondary just as much as anybody. 
And honestly, all that stuff about baseball being the strategy game is ridiculous. I mean, yeah, double switches can be a little bit tricky, but they're nothing compared to the read option. But here's the thing. Baseball isn't about a crushing, brutal Sunday afternoon and tending your wounds for a week or a fourth quarter push on a Friday night. Baseball's a companion. Baseball's there for you every day. Win or lose, there's another game tomorrow, another chance to sit down with your dad or your daughter and celebrate what you share. When I feel lousy, I know I can take off my shoes, turn on the TV, and the Giants will be there for me. Or if the Giants have an off day, the A's will fill in. When it's late in the season and your team's in fourth place, 10 games under 500, and it's starting to get cold and the shadows are long, baseball can be a little bit melancholy. But right now, opening day, this could be the year. We could win it all together. It doesn't get any better than that. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Thomas Madison. Our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also visit us on Twitter, at Bullseye, on Facebook and SoundCloud, where you can share segments with your friends. I guess that's about it. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Our thanks this week to Neil Rausch at NPR in New York for engineering help on our interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported. Before we go, just one final reminder. It's pledge drive time. Maybe you already went to MaximumFun.org slash donate and made a pledge, and for that, I thank you. But I know that most of you haven't yet. Now is the time. Go to MaximumFun.org slash donate. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new members.